So we're starting a new series with our students this week, with you guys as well. It's called The Haves and Have-Nots, and um, as, as we're doing that, I, <clears throat> one of the things we're, we're really trying to help our students understand is that their story is unique. Their story and their own lives uh, have an impact on what their future will be, uh, but it's not a less than kind of story. So there's this tendency that we have as human beings to look left and right to determine our value. We, we compare ourselves in any variety, with any variety of metrics to determine whether or not we have value as compared to those around us. One of the very interesting things about this comparison is it's so contextual. It's, it's so wrapped up with where we live and where we're from. I mean, like, the reality is if you sit there and, and, and at this stage of life for me personally, there are neighborhoods I drive through and I'm like, man, I want that. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't that house, wouldn't that property, wouldn't that land, wouldn't that be great? But that's a, that's a comparison when I think about my own situation, my own home. That's a comparison that's so contextual. It's so based on living in northern Williamson County. Like, people in other countries don't feel that same comparison because when they, when they, if they were to come here, if they were to leave some third world setting and they were to drive down the street, they would look at my house and say, that's ideal. Like, what in the world? Why, why, how could I want anything more than that? And so it's, it, it's so contextual. But what happens is, regardless of the context that we're in, regardless of where we live, the comparison game is very real. It's a part of our lives. And so at, at different stages, it takes on different tones. When you're first exiting college and you're starting your careers, one of the easy areas of comparison is what that first real job is. And so when you exit the university and you've graduated, you've paid your dues and you haven't paid your school loans yet, but you will, you promise you will. But as you exit, you, you start, everybody starts kind of getting that first job. And that value system kind of establishes, and, and honestly, there's this idea that, man, if I don't get that great first job right after college compared to that person right there, I could even project out 40 years down the road, my life won't be as good as his life. And so we start playing that comparison game right away, right after college, and it goes on, and it's like, man, like, I have, I have friends that are honestly 10 years away from retirement. Like, they're, they're sitting there, they can make it. They'll, they have the ability, if they continue on the way they're going right now, to probably retire in their 40s. And I look at that as a youth pastor, and I'm like, there's no way. Like, maybe I'd like to, because retreats and, like, lock-ins are terrible, but, like, there's no, there's no retiring in your 40s if you're if you're a youth pastor, and so, but, but it's easy, like, so you're, you're into your career, and you start even comparing down the road, and then there's those, those others that are so far down at the tail end of their career, and yet, even as they approach retirement, it's like, okay, but what kind of retirement is it? You know, it's like, ah, yeah, okay, we've got enough to pay the bills, but there's not enough to travel everywhere we want to go, like those people, and so the, the comparison game is very, very real. Now, Start this kind of looking at the college level, and I want you to know that it doesn't start at college. Comparison begins well before that. I've got a six-year-old, four-year-old, three-year-old, and one-year-old, and my, my kids are very good at this comparison game. Um, my wife is so kind to bake quite often, but what happens is when, when the cookies are baked and we start passing them out to our kids, like my kids will look left and right. His cookie's bigger. Like, I mean, like it's, it's like by default, they're going to compare the value of what they have 
not based on whether I have something or I don't have something. They're literally going to look left and right to start determining the value of what they have because the value is determined by the comparison to something next to them. Now, when it gets into elementary school, it takes on a little bit of a different tone, but when we hit middle school and high school, we start comparing ourselves in the area of self-worth. This is an area in our kids' lives where, where comparison takes on a new tenor, a new tone, a new focus, and it can be very, very scary. Now, here's, here's something that you did not deal with, that your kids are dealing with. You see, the, the idea that we're going to compare left and right is one that used to take place only based on physical context. You know, we start this conversation like the comparison game is based on context. Where do we live? Where are we? And for us growing up, the comparison was based on where we were. Think about it this way. If, if you're an athlete at your school, if you want to be a starter, the only people you have to beat out are the people at your school. Like You don't have to be better than anyone at any school to be the starter at your school. You should be better than people at your school. That's it. The comparison about your value is based on those people around you. Now, here's something very interesting. You don't get to just stay there. Like Your actual talents and abilities get compared to the other teams you face. But it's still only compared to that team you're facing that week. And so we kind of get this idea that in our context, where we are physically is where the comparison happens. That's not the world our middle school and high school students live in. They literally get to play the comparison game with millions upon millions of people in their same situation in life. Now, there's some really awesome things in the area of social media that brings the world together and connects it, but one of the areas that impacts our teenagers in an incredibly powerful way is in this area of comparison. What I have or what I don't have, what my past has or what my past doesn't have, the family I was raised in or the family I wasn't raised in, the opportunities I have or the opportunities I don't have, because the reality is they have person after person after person, not tens of people, not hundreds of people, not thousands of people, but literally millions of people to compare to every single day. And so if, if what has occurred is that it starts going it, it, in, in preschool, Early elementary school, we have this comparison about, I just kind of want, like I just want what I don't have. I want at least as much as the people around me because I like stuff, I like things. The comparison game goes on from elementary school into middle school and high school starts being about whether or not I'm, whether or not I'm, I'm, I'm worth it as a person, whether or not I have intrinsic value. And so when you couple that with the exposure to millions of people, and if comparison says, if I'm not as good as I don't have value, then it's no wonder. It's no wonder that we have an epidemic of adolescents who are depressed, who feel less than, because they are playing the comparison game and they're losing. Because any time your value, any time your value is based on left and right, you're going to lose. Because there's always people that are smarter. There's always people that are better looking. There are always people that have more. There is. And if you haven't found those people, just expand your circle wide enough, and I guarantee you. And if you're struggling in that, 
Like, I'll introduce you to some people that are better looking or more financially stable. Like, I, I will. No, we can all help each other in that way by just that mutual accountability and honesty. And, but we live, we live in a day and age where our, our kids are making some decisions about whether or not they actually have worth based on this comparison left and right. Now, one of the areas that we tend to compare ourselves to one another is one of the areas that, that really kind of sticks to the core of who we are is our past. And it's kind of answering the question, do you know what I have done? If you only knew what I had done, you, you would not view me the same way. Now, so over, over the course of this series, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to kind of track through Moses' story. And in the parent yap that has some discussion questions, one of the things that's been added this week is an encouragement that throughout this series, you would kind of read through Exodus 1 through 18 as a family. If you have an opportunity to kind of just discuss those, those chapters uh, with your kids, uh, there's no like regimented reading plan or anything like that. Today we'll be, we'll be tackling Exodus 1 and 2, uh, just a little bit talking about Moses' story in that. Next week, Exodus 3 and 4, and then after that, we just kind of expand it out quite a bit to cover the rest. But if, you, if you're looking for something to walk through with your kids over the next 28 days uh, during the duration of this series, I, I would encourage you to just kind of walk through Exodus 1 through 18. Because a lot of what we're talking about is the area of thinking about our value, thinking about whether or not uh, we're good enough, will be covered in, that, in those passages. And so, um, when we have this idea of this past, we think about whether or not we have value. So some of us, we actually do have past. Like, the, like this idea of the past has this connotation that's kind of negative. Like, oh, that person has a past. Like if you knew that person, you would know they have a past. It's just kind of this like negative connotation. Anytime we talk about the past in that way, we're talking about the things they've done. But not the good things, the bad things. And so we all walk around, and if we were to slow down long enough, we could reflect and say there are things in our past that we would not want people in this circle, in this church, to know about. Like there, there are things that we, we have kept in our mind, we have kept, and the memories have not faded, but we still don't talk about them. Because we don't want to talk about them. Because we don't want people to know. Because if, if people knew what happened in our past, they would think less of us. So we, we look at a guy like Moses... So Moses was, was, was somebody who later on in life was called to do some great things, but Moses was born into some circumstances where you would say, yeah, this guy kind of has a past. So he was born into a time where, where all of his people, the, the little boys that were being born, were, were, were commanded to be killed. And so he, he starts off kind of um, at a disadvantage. If you look at, at the origin story of Moses, you look at it and say, yeah, number one, this guy should already be dead, but instead of being dead, his mom makes this basket, puts him in the river, and he gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he's, he's this adopted kid, doesn't get to be with his birth family, but the, by the grace of God, his birth mom gets to come uh, kind of like nurse him all the way through early childhood. It's this incredible, just redemptive story of how God even used te terrible circumstances to keep a family together. But you have Moses who was adopted. He grows up as a foreigner kind of raised by a different nation. And then, as he goes on, he, he ends up getting angry because he sees some of his own people being mistreated. 
And instead of taking it to the court system, instead of trying to institute uh, change within the nation, instead of trying to get his people taken care of, he takes everything into his own hands and he literally kills the person that made him angry. Now when he kills the person that made him angry, he runs away. Because that's what you do when you kill people. You don't get just like, oh, okay, uh, I'll just stay here and hang out and see how things go. Like, No, no, the, like, if you ever find yourself in that situation... Run away. Like, that's, that's the ideal thing. No, but Moses, he, he ends up killing a person, and he runs away, and he goes into the wilderness. Away from his people, away from the people that adopted him, and he's all alone. And then, in the midst of all that, God calls him to something great. In the midst of God calling him to something great, we hear that not only has Moses been adopted not only has Moses uh, run away from his adoptive family, not only has Moses murdered someone, Moses also has speech issues. And so like, like you have this adopted murderer who walks around with a speech impediment. Like that's a past that anybody would look at and say, hey, like I, I don't know how valuable I really am because there are people that are well-spoken that are better than me. There are people that got to be raised in a great home that are better than me. There are people that haven't done what I've done that are better than me. And yet, God still chooses to use Moses. Now, we're going to fast forward all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. We're going to even leapfrog Jesus himself to talk about one of the guys that Jesus' ministry impacted. We're going to spend time in, in just one verse today, and we'll talk more and more about this as we move along. Um, but today we're going to focus on one passage, 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. And so we have this story of Moses in his past, and we'll see over the next few weeks of what God does with that. But I want to jump ahead and look at somebody else's story on somebody else who had a past. We're going to look at what Paul says about his past. So Paul, Paul was a guy who was a Jewish leader at the time of, of Jesus' ministry. Following Jesus' death and resurrection and then ascension into heaven, what the early church starts doing is going around telling everyone about Jesus. And there were Jewish leaders at the time who didn't like the fact that the gospel was being spread. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was being talked about. And so they would, they would make appeals to different regional leaders and say, hey, listen, these Christians are there. They're saying all these different things. Would it be okay if we came in and either arrested them or killed them? And local officials who didn't want uprising, local officials who didn't want to battle with Rome, local officials who, who really didn't want to deal with the collateral damage of a political movement said, yeah, come on in. And so Saul was one of the guys who, who was very intent on finding these Christians, rooting them out, and removing them from the region. All in his mind, to preserve God's people. Like he, he thought that he was going around protecting the integrity of God and the institution of, of Jewish religion. And so we actually get introduced to, to Saul, Paul. And the very first thing we see is that he's the guy holding the coats while, while Christians are being stoned and killed. So that's how we kind of meet him. So as we go through, though, we see in Paul's story that, that Jesus doesn't leave him to just be a, a Christian killer. He doesn't leave the, him in that state. He actually has this life-altering occurrence where he's traveling down the road, and Jesus appears to him and says, hey, you know how you've been going around like, persecuting my people? 
Well, stop that. You're, you're going to actually keep going around, but instead of going after my people, you, you're going to go after my people. And what I mean by that is it's not, it's not like you're going after them to kill them. You're actually going to find the people that are supposed to be my people. And so you're going to go around telling everyone the good news of Jesus. And so in one of the letters he writes to one of, his, one of the guys he administered to, he writes this, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Now, before we talk about anything else, there are sayings that we say on a regular basis. Baseball sayings would be like, keep your eye on the ball. That's a saying. If you go to any, I don't care if that coach was called, they just signed their kid up for t-ball or whatever, and the coordinator said, hey, listen, we really need a coach. And the dad says, I never played baseball. It's like, oh, okay, uh, we still need a coach. And that dad that goes out there having never played baseball gets out there, and you know what he's saying on the field the very first practice? Keep your eye on the ball. I don't know why we say it, but we say it. And I get why we say it. But those sayings just stick. Like there's some sayings that just are so big, so powerful, in whatever arena we're in, it doesn't matter who you are, you've probably heard that saying. Don't make me come up there. That's one that is said often. It doesn't do any good, by the way. Like, like I am going to go up there. Like, I know I'm going to go up there. I don't know why I say it. So does anybody have, like, but any sayings that you either, like, you know, it's like this is kind of like a family thing, or... I, you just have in your household, I'd just be interested to hear, is there anything that you've heard yourself say over and over again, or you've heard said in your home, or maybe even from childhood? Did you put, up, did you put on your deodorant? Did you put on your deodorant? <laughs> Are you really going out looking like that? Man. Wait. Okay. You get to choose what day, what kind of day you're having? You get to choose what kind of day you're going to have. What you... There's not really a cat in the closet. There's not really a cat in the closet. That's something that recur... that's recurring? It's awesome. So we, we have these sayings, and, and they kind of stick with us, and they shape some of the values. But I, I just want... I, I, look at, I look at this passage. I'm like, this is a saying that that maybe our family should internalize. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Like, when, <laughs> I'm going to go like pop culture for a second. So when Kanye West says he's a Christian and he comes up with an album, do you, do you know what saying might should go through our heads? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When, when, when we're dealing with issues down at the Gaga Ball pit because a sixth grader, want, sixth grader wants to get mouthy, like Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When we're, when we're in arguments at work and we just can't see eye to eye with somebody and you know that this person is outright, not just wrong about the facts, but wrong morally, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When we're thinking about Thanksgiving coming up and we have those family members that we've been disconnected from for a long time and we just don't want to be any part of because of how they've treated us and how they've treated our family, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
If that kind of saying, that specific saying stuck in our hearts and in our vocabulary, I think our lives would be a little bit different. But one of the great things about this is that when we look at our past and we look at the things we've done and we compare ourselves side to side because of how bad we think we are and we think of the things that we have silenced, we've muted, we've erased from what we're willing to talk about that's occurred in our lives, you know what saying should prevail? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul followed it up by saying, and I am the worst of them all. Which means, he came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save our kids, our families, co-workers, neighbors. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So there's a couple of different things as we wrap up. I want to give you a little bit of a heads up about what's going to occur with our students on Wednesday night uh, and prepare you for that from a parent standpoint and then give you some opportunity to participate as well. Um, so one of the things that we're going to do is we are, we're going to ask our students to reflect on these four areas of um, history, heroes, hurts, and hopes. And so we're going to ask them to kind of look at their past Think through, as when you were a little kid, who were your heroes? What were some of the things you hoped for? What are some of the things you've dealt with from a pain standpoint? What are your hopes for the future? Those types of things. And so we're going to walk through this with your kids on Wednesday night and give them an opportunity to do that. From a parent standpoint, uh, some of these questions are in that yap as well. And I, I just want to encourage you that if, if you're trying to connect with your kid throughout this series, uh, these may be four areas in which to reflect with them. Because one of the realities that we face is that at some point, our past starts becoming a barrier for relationships. Uh, it also becomes a barrier for relationships between parents and kids. And so use this as kind of a little bit of a springboard, if you want to, to talk with your kids about that. If you want to do one, if, if you're one of those parents who say, hey, before I ask you to do anything, I'll go ahead and do it first, like, reflect on this. It's there for you if you want it. Um, the second thing I would, I would tell you is uh, with, with that dynamic on Wednesday night with your kids, uh, Wednesday night's going to look a little bit different from a timing standpoint within the worship hour. We'll still dismiss by, by 8.15, uh, but I just want you to know that if you're up here or whatever, you may see groups of students kind of break off all around this third floor to, to reflect on those things. The final thing I'll say on this is that in, in any ministry setting, whether it's with adults or with students, is that if you're working with people who have lived life long enough and you start asking questions about the past, there's, there's a possibility that pain will be drummed up. We know that. And we want you to know that we love you and we love your family and we love your kids. And in anything that comes up, we're, we're going to handle with loving care. But I want you to know that, that we are aware. We're aware that when we ask about past hurts in your life, those are very real. And so um, I want to encourage you as a, as a mom and a dad to take a proactive stance and, and posture when it comes to helping your kid think through. Because you don't want to... <laughs> I'll put it this way. If you have the opportunity to bring life and hope and reconciliation with your 12-year-old instead of waiting until they're 42, like that's a good thing. Because there are things that some of your kids would say are past hurts that they'll stick, that'll stick with them. 
And so if you have an opportunity to address it now, I encourage you to take that. Let me pray for us, and then you can break into small groups. Father, we are so glad that you love us in spite of our failings. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world to save sinners. We love you. Amen.